Hi, you're listening to The Get, the podcast about finding and keeping great marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. I'm Erica Seidel, your host. Almost every CMO has the same grumble. Everyone at my company thinks they're a marketer. Everyone has an opinion, even if they are not in marketing. But what if that's a good thing for everyone to have an opinion? Our guest today makes this case. What if you acknowledge that people across the company have an emotional investment in the brand? And what if you embraced it and actually harnessed it? Today, you'll hear from Justin Steinman. Justin is the CMO of Definitive Healthcare, the healthcare commercial intelligence company. Justin joined the company to help scale to the $500 million mark and went through an IPO already. You'll hear about what it's like to do a rebrand, a marketing transformation, and an IPO all at once. You'll hear why a CMO should never use the phrase, my marketing budget. You'll learn how to tell whether a company that has not traditionally invested in marketing is ready for it. You'll find out how to bring in best practices from big companies to companies that are scaling up without overpowering the business. And you'll hear one particularly revealing interview question that you will probably want to start asking all of your candidates. Justin, I am delighted to have you on the show. You are pretty fresh off of an IPO for Definitive Healthcare, and I would love to jump right into this and just ask, what are lessons for a CMO following in your footsteps and facing an IPO journey? Like, can you share a definite do and a definite don't? Sure. So first off, Erica, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Looking forward to a fun conversation today. (laughs) I wouldn't say that anybody's going to follow in my footsteps, right? I mean, everybody goes on their own unique journey and does their own thing. Uh, And I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to say that I have anything figured out, much less a whole pathway to an IPL. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as a definite do and a definite don't, aside from probably one thing, which is definitely remember that you are part of a team and that no man or woman is an island and can do this on your own. There are a million and one pieces. Uh, that are part of an IPO and it's going to feel crazy and it's going to feel like it's a roller coaster. But you've got to remember that you're on a team and there are people to help you along the way. Was there something surprising about the experience that sticks out to you as when you think about going through that whole process, like a moment that, you know, just is very iconic of of that time? So there are all sorts of things that are significant from the IPO. I mean, we went public uh, on the NASDAQ and probably for us, the most iconic moment was seeing our brand new brand, our logo, uh, visual identity and color uh, scheme up on the advertisements in Times Square on the big NASDAQ towers. Things that I would recommend that you never do is I'd never recommend that any CMO do what we did, which is do a complete visual identity. In fact, more or less complete rebrand of the company at the same time as you are doing an IPO. Uh, It's just too crazy. And, you know, we did everything from who our core foundation is, what's our core identity to voice and tone to vision, mission, about us, wordmark, logo, color scheme, website, uh, you name it, product naming hierarchy. And to try to rebrand that entire company and create it, also we created a category too, just for giggles, healthcare, commercial intelligence, trying to do all of that at the same time as you're going through an IPO and writing an S1 with the bankers and meeting with potential investors and doing a roadshow video and everything else. I mean, there are days when we would literally finish the product naming architecture 
And then two hours later, I was on the phone with the bankers telling them, hey, put you know this name or these new product names in the S1. Much less, you know, we didn't have a, a couple hours for it to sit, much less, you know, the several weeks that you would need to, for it to kind of sit. But without a doubt, the most iconic moment of all was after we rang the bell, we went out into Times Square and we saw on those massive towers, our new slogan, you know, discover opportunity, logo, wordmark, everything in bright colors. And to think that was on a drawing board, you know, six months ago, I guess my laptop monitor six months ago as we are debating the finer points of it with our advertising agency and our branding agency. And so that was a pretty crazy experience. And it was very surreal, if you will. That sounds awesome. It's quite a, quite a moment. So a lot of what you've done at Definitive Healthcare is a marketing transformation. And this is kind of your signature sauce because you and I have known each other for a while. We've talked through various uh, jobs that you've had and you seem really good at getting an organization to appreciate marketing, both from a budget standpoint and a reputational standpoint internally. Can you, can you talk about steering that shift and that, that part of the transformation and, and how you like unlock and evolve others' view of marketing? I'm very curious to, to kind of get very you know, specific here. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack in there. So, you know, I'm going to date us both here, Erica, and say that I've known you probably for a decade at this point. And I will never forget having lunch with you when you said, Jesse, you need to work on your LinkedIn profile. And I think you should put that you're a senior executive with a flair for business transformation. And I (laughs) think that flair for business transformation is actually on my LinkedIn profile still to this day. So kudos to you for that. So you know, I do love a good transformation, if you will. I love a good scotch. I love a good transformation. And so one of the things that I was brought into definitive healthcare to do was really to up-level the marketing. It was marketing had historically not been an area that Jason, our CEO, had invested in. He's a very, very great product guy, and it, we have one hell of a sales engine here. And Jason really built this company on product and sales. And having taken private equity from admin back in 2019 and then going through an IPO, they basically the feedback was what got you to $160 million in revenue isn't going to get you to 500 million. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you need to do is really up-level marketing. And so I met Jason through a serendipitous uh, introduction. Actually, my next one neighbor introduced me to him. And, you know, we, things went pretty quickly and I wound up here. Uh, and it's been a little over a year at this point. And so when I walked in the door, Jason gave me a, a lot of rain. He said, hey, look, we don't really know a, a lot about marketing here at Definitive. We've kind of just done, you know, a lot of inbound, a lot of website. We've got a hunch that there's a lot more, but we need you to help us frame that out and teach us. And the thing that I've always thought about marketing, it's, it's a really interesting job in any company, right? Because every single person, is a marketer at some level and thinks they know about marketing, right? We all watch TV. We all see advertisements. We all surf the web. How many ads do you see on a given day? You're being marketed to. And at the same point in time, marketing represents the ethos of the company out to the world. So everybody in the company is emotionally invested in marketing. And, you know, we really felt this acutely in our brand. Whether we pick, you know, Microsoft Azure or the Google Cloud or Amazon Web Services, 
I'm not emotionally invested in that, right? That is a decision that our CTO and his team of engineers make. And whatever they go, I go, great, you guys are the experts. I trust you. Conversely, those folks are emotionally invested in what our brand is and what our tagline is and what we stand for and how we look and present ourselves to the market. And you know what? They have every right to be emotionally invested in that. And they have every right to weigh in on that. And so to be a good CMO and get people to appreciate the value, you have to not only acknowledge that emotional investment, but you have to embrace it. And you have to bring people on the journey and you have to hear people out and you have to not let it get personal when you put, you know, the new brand out there and somebody from sales who's been here maybe two years says, I really don't like that. It's not who I think we are. Well, you got to hear that person out. Now, the trick in all this, because if you listen to everybody, you're going to wind up with a brand of mishmash. And you're not going to stand for anything, which is the worst thing of all. Because if you make everybody happy, you're going to make nobody happy. So the real trick here is to do pattern recognition and to synthesize a bunch of data points that may at first seem random into a comprehensive view where you can get a real true brand architecture and message and story to the marketplace. That's a little bit about how you start to get everybody in. And you've got to bring people on the journey. and Never let it get personal for you because it's personal for everybody else. And that's really important, I think. That's so great. I, I love this idea of acknowledging and embracing the emotional investment that the rest of the company has in marketing. Because I think a lot of people run away from it. They're like, oh, everybody's going to have an opinion. And uh, like I, I interviewed somebody recently who said, other people come to me and tell me they have a background in marketing. And I tell them, well, I have a foreground in marketing, you know, and so it's a little bit of this, this kind of fight back and forth, but you're kind of, it's like a jujitsu move or, a, you know, like kind of going with it as opposed to like, you know, pushing against the um, opinions of other people. You really have to embrace it because people care and you got to accept and appreciate that people care. Honestly, the worst thing in the world that you could do would be to launch a new brand and have people say, eh, I don't really care. Right. Yeah. That's terrible. Right. I got not to like pat my team on the back here, but I got like love notes from various people across the organization, like saying, you know, Justin, you and your team have managed to put what I've always felt about this company into our website and into our story. Like one mm. person's like, I actually got choked up reading the new vision and mission because it's really who I think definitive healthcare is. <laughs> when, when you get those like messages, like I started to get choked up. I'm like, oh my God, these people care so deeply. Mm -hmm. about this company because where they come and they put their heart and soul in every day. If I can pivot a bit, it's, it's not just about brand, right? One of the things that, you know, you and I have always joked about over the year, when I talk about marketing budgets, I never, ever, ever use the phrase my marketing budget. Never. It is our marketing budget. It's my job as the CMO to be the best spender best investor, best utilizer, use that budget in the most efficient way to generate the best return on investment for the company. But it is never my money. It is ours and it's collective. And I really view myself as the steward for spending that. And then in order to generate the trust that you need to spend that money, 
you need to have, again, radical transparency. I publish for anybody who wants to see it as an Excel file on our SharePoint that has no permissions on it, our entire marketing funnel. And you can see by segment, we have six segments that we compete in, how many MQLs we've generated, what their conversion is to a marketing sales qualified leader, an MSQL, to wins, to dollars of pipeline generated, to cost per MQL, cost per SQL, so that everybody in the organization, if they're curious, can see how we are performing. And then once a month, as part of our monthly KPIs, I walk our senior leadership team through all of our metrics in marketing and say, hey, we decided we're going to go and double down on a specialized campaign doing upsell for biopharma. This is how it worked. This is what we learned. We crushed it over here. And over here, that campaign really didn't resonate. And let me tell you why. And here's what mm. we're going to do differently. And I don't know, you know, because I don't work in a lot of other companies, how many CMOs come in and really give that radical transparency so everybody feels like, okay, I know we're just in spending this money because if you're not in marketing, it feels like a lot of money coming out, right? Your CFO is like, oh my God, I'm just giving this check to marketing. What am I getting again from them? I don't really know. Mm. You know, you got to really, we're a very, very data-driven company. So giving that data and that transparency, I think it's people comfortable with how they work with marketing and that they are getting a good return on that investment. You know, you said that Definitive was very focused on product and sales, you know, initially and had grown quite nicely, you know, with that. How do you know as a CMO whether a company that has traditionally not focused on marketing is really ready for that transformation and it's and it's something worthy of your time, like good putty in your hands to shape versus, oh God, stay clear of this because they say they want marketing, but they they might not. Like what are those signals? Well, so at the end of the day, it's it's people more than anything else. You could have the most talented marketer in the world, and I am not that person. You could put the most talented marketer in the world in a company where if the CEO didn't give them room to operate and was micromanaging them and thought that they knew more than that, you know, super talented CMO, they wouldn't be successful. And so, you know, when I was looking at Definitive, it really came down to conversations. I spent a ton of time talking with Jason and I really understood, I mean, Jason's a founder and CEO. He started this company, you know, in his spare bedroom in, you know, Holliston a decade ago. And he's still here. He's that rare CEO who's been able to scale with his company from, you know, zero dollars, literally, all the way up to, I think we're about 160 million in AR today. He's still here and, you know, working, you know, 80 hours a week. And so I spent a ton of time with Jason, really understanding why he was ready to do this, what had changed, what his plans were. True story. Jason told me that uh, we were planning to go, he was planning, you know, if everything went well to go public in the fall of 2023. And I said, Jason, you know, based on my understanding of your market, you need to build a demand generation engine, you need to fix your brand. We need to get, you have one product marketing manager. We got to build a product marketing. And Jason's like, Justin, like, dude, you're going to have two years to come and build this thing. Plenty of time. I trust you, you know, go and do it. And, you know, I've been here for 40 days and the board calls us up and our first board, literally my first board meeting. And they're like, all right, uh, so we're going to target going public in the next summer. And I'm like, huh? What do you mean? And Jason's like, hey, we'll figure it out, man. So we figured it out. But I spent a ton of time with Jason. I spent a ton of time with Joe, our head of sales, really understanding if Joe's team had the appetite 
to work with marketing and what they needed. And if they were ready for that, they wanted, you know, next generation of marketing tools, if they were going to be good partners and, you know, tell us what marketing collateral they needed. If they were, if we were going to generate leads, were they prepared to follow up and did they have a nice ISR motion to catch them? The answer to all of that was obviously yes. And we have a tremendously tight partnership. And I talked to Joe like five times a day. We're talking three times today and it's only one thirty or two o'clock here. And I talked to Kate, our head of product, quite extensively to understand, you know, her attitude and at her desire to work with product marketing. And she listed a whole bunch of things that she needed from marketing uh, and could have waited for us to get in the door here, like MRDs, market sizing, competitive intelligence, strong product marketing collateral, and you know, all the good stuff that you would want your head of product to say. And then I spent some time with the board. I think I met with four board members, one-on-one, each for an hour plus, really to understand if they were ready to invest in marketing and grow. And to a person, they all were like, yes, and here's where we see the opportunities. These are all people from you know Spectrum Equity, 22C, and Advent who'd invested in the company. And so they put their money where their proverbial mouth is to invest in the company. So if I didn't have that level of board support, I wouldn't have been able to come in here and do what we needed to get done. So it really comes down to, you know, making sure that your CEO, your board, your head of sales and your head of product are all aligned and ready to make that transformation. I like how you're asking particular questions and getting a sense of, you know, like is is what they want meaty or does does it need a shift? And and sometimes the CMO has to like kind of educate on what they can bring to an organization, you know, and I guess it's like some roles have more education than others. One of the big changes that we've made here was this was a company that was built on the back of free trials. And it was basically organic search uh, results, driving people to our website where you give us your contact information. And then we'd get you on the phone for a free trial and or a Zoom call or anything. And because the product is so freaking compelling, the number of people who closed deals was, it was ridiculously high. But at some point, you peter out in terms of where you top off in terms of where you can get from organic search. We had never done an outbound marketing campaign. The company had, had an occasional webinar here, and they'd had a ton of people show up, and none of them had ever been qualified. Well, mm-hmm. you know, every marketer listening to this podcast knows, tell me how many people you want on the, the webinar, and if you don't care if they're qualified or not, I can get them, <laughs> right? It's getting <laughs> the qualified people on the webinar. And we didn't have any lead nurturing, right? So. We were basically historically before I got here, only capturing people who were in the buying cycle and we were converting them. The trick in marketing, particularly as we wanted to increase our average deal size and go after more enterprise accounts is we wanted to get people who were not in the buying cycle into the buying cycle and then nurturing them throughout. Frankly, that's more expensive than just doing organic search and having free trials come in, right? And so there was a lot of yeah, we know we need to do this, but we're not really sure it's going to work because this is where we got it. Justin, we're going to hold our breath and jump off the cliff with you here, but I'm going to bring a parachute because I'm really not sure that trust this is actually going to work, but can you please prove it to me? (laughs) And so we jumped off the cliff together this year with that and have put together our first real outbound campaigns and they've delivered tremendous results. But there was a lot of healthy skepticism because we've never done that here before. Let's talk about the team that's behind you. Can you talk about like, well, first, is leading a marketing team for a newly public company significantly different than for a private company? Like, have you switched the organization post IPO? I'm happy to say that there's been absolutely no change to the marketing team after the IPO. Okay. And, you know, if, if anything, 
it's refreshing. So I, I've got a tremendous team that works with me, just tremendous. And I really had to disappear for large chunks of last year, working with our CFO or general counsel, the bankers to get all of the stuff ready for the IPO. And so my leadership team really ran marketing day to day, kept the business not only running, but frankly growing, even knowing that I was, you know, gone for days or, you know, not as engaged as I would like to be. The best part about being after being done with the IPO is I'm back at my job and I love my job and I put my hard hat on and, you know, it's all right. We're back to, you know, building our, you know, our next generation of demand generation campaigns. We're updating our messaging. We're going deeper down in. We're putting in new ROI calculators. I got a list of improvements a mile long we want to do on our website. We're launching our own podcast called Definitively Speaking. We're doing all sorts of stuff, really just kind of good old marketing. And it's fun to go back and do that. About the only change that's really impacted me, and it hasn't impacted really the rest of my team, is I share responsibility for investor relations with our CFO. We've outsourced investor relations to a third party. And, you know, I handle the marketing part of investor relations. Our CFO obviously handles all the financial part of it. And so I've had to take on that additional responsibility. And, you know, that's like working on earnings call scripts, keeping the IR website up to date. All of that type of stuff has been added to, to my plate. But that's been a great learning experience and a lot of fun. But the rest of it's just kind of going off and, you know, doing good marketing and helping the company grow. That's great. Good old marketing. I, I, I like it. And you made, you know, a, as you were saying, like a transformation of marketing and the, and the view of marketing within the organization. Was there any particular organizational decision that you made that turned out well or, or not well to support the business for scale? You know, it's funny. I like to joke that everything I learned about marketing, I learned from John Dragoon 10 years ago when I was working at Novell or even longer than that. God, John Dragoon was the chief marketing officer at Novell when I worked there. If John were to walk in the door this afternoon and ask me for an org chart of what definitive healthcare marketing looks like, it would look exactly like what he was running a decade ago. All right. Mm -hmm. I got three teams. I've got a product marketing team, a demand gen and marketing ops team, and a corporate marketing team. It ain't innovative. It doesn't need to be innovative. The structure works. It's all about getting the right people in the structure. And so none of this existed when I got here. When I joined Definitive, there was like a digital team and then there was like a content team. And the people on the digital team were doing content and some of the digital people, some people on the content team were doing digital and no one's really thinking about like demand gen because everybody and nobody owned it. There was one person here kind of doing product marketing. There was someone, you know, a former consultant who was sort of kind of doing competitive intelligence, but not really. And so what we did was we put that, um, almost immediately put that structure in place. And I brought in three VPs to uh, run that, each one of those, and then built that the teams underneath them. Of the roughly 25 people that we have in marketing here, 20 have been hired in the past year. So... Um... So, uh, you know, one thing that sometimes makes search hard for me as, you know, a client is saying like, okay, we're at whatever, a hundred million and we want to get to 200 million, bring us people who have done that arc before, who have done that climb. 
and and people want to do it again, you know, and mm-hmm. and that can be challenging. And then you find yourself in these inane conversations, not inane, but you know, it's like, oh, how far have you scaled? Oh, well, why wasn't it higher? Well, oh, okay, well, the company got bought on the way up, or oh, okay, that's impressive, or you know, oh, the company grew through acquisition. Is that better than organically? And and so I've been thinking a lot lately about the difference between hiring somebody who has scaled versus hiring somebody who has worked at scale. And I think of you as somebody, you know, like from your previous experiences, you've worked at scale, but you haven't done this exact climb that that you've done at Definitive Healthcare. You haven't done that before. So how do you think about that, you know, that scaling versus working at scale and, and how does it come across in the blend of people that you hire on your team? Uh, you're right. I've never done the scale journey. I've operated at scale. I mean, Novell was this pro before coming to Definitive Healthcare. Novell was the smallest company I worked at. You know, we were about $850 million in revenue. You know, then I was at GE, then Aetna, and then Aetna got bought by CVS. So I've lived at scale. Some of the largest, most successful companies in the world, or I've just been a tiny cog in those organizations. So I've seen what good looks like. I've also, because those organizations, seen what bad looks like, right? Those, I would say those organizations are perfect organization is. And so what you've got to find is you've got to find the people who know what scale looks like, but want to go on the journey to get there. And the biggest trick in all of that is knowing what to let slide. Like I could come in here on day one and, you know, Let's be honest, GE had some of the best marketing operations reporting I've ever seen in the world. It was marketing reporting like you wouldn't believe. Amazing doesn't begin to cover it, okay? I could come in here and say, I want marketing reporting at Definitive Health Rule just like GE because that's best in class. And I could need, I'd need 20 people just to do that. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Mm. So what did I do instead? I literally built out an Excel spreadsheet that dealt a demand generation funnel, taking kind of what I saw, the best of what I saw at GE and scaled it down, if you will, to work at Mm. a company of the size of Definitive and said, all right, here's what I want our funnel to look like. Here's how we're going to calculate it. And we're going to report on it weekly. And we're going to roll in, you know, we're moving off of HubSpot and onto Marketo. And we just moved onto uh, Acquia for our website and we're using Salesforce. And so we're putting the systems in place to start that reporting. I know what, you know, a scaled product marketing organization looks like. You should have MRDs, competitive battle cards, market sizing, positioning documents, decks for every single segment, customer facing decks for every single segment. You know what? When I got here, we didn't have a single positioning document. We didn't have a single MRD. We had no competitive intelligence. We couldn't do all of that. We, you know, we didn't have a team. We had one person. So we built out a team and then we said, okay, what's the most important thing? We need positioning documents. That's the most fundamental. That's customer facing. Everybody will get that. You got your biggest bang for your buck. So we have did a round of positioning documents for all of our products and our solutions. We haven't even touched MRDs yet. I've been here a year. This is the first time in my entire career I haven't had MRDs. You know what? I don't have the capacity or the people to write them right now. I know we need them. Maybe we'll get to the middle of next year. I'm praying that we can, but you know, I don't want to kill the organization that people writing MRDs on Saturdays and Sundays, like that's just miserable. And so the trick, as I said, is to figure out when you've seen these best in class marketing organizations operate at scale, how do you pick the most impactful things based on where you are in your company's journey and you get them? 
if you want to shift to talk a little bit about people, which I know is a, a pretty core passion of yours, Erica, I always talk about putting people together as a puzzle. I wanted some people who have worked at scale, right? So, you know, our head of product marketing came from Walters Clore. Our head of demand generation came from PTC, but she previously had worked at Improvada. Those are all large companies. Our head of corporate marketing came from an ad agency in Cambridge where there was 80 people. We have hired product marketing people from Cardinal Health all the way down to a small 100-person medical device startup. If you look at our demand gen team, we've hired folks out of Athena Health. Again, you have worked at scale. But our head of marketing operations is someone who's on their first job still working at Definitive, right? And he screw up with the company. He's an immensely talented guy. And so it's really that combination of blending the right skills, attitudes, big and small, to go on that scaling journey together. I love that. I like the analogy of a puzzle. I think of it that way, too. It's like, because sometimes when I do a search, it's like, oh, we need a CMO and then we need, you know, three people under them. And, you know, should we have the CMO that focuses on brand or on performance and whatever it is, they're going to have to hire somebody around them. And I always tell people, you know, it's like a puzzle, you know, you put in one piece first, maybe it's the more junior person, maybe it's the more senior person, you know, and then the other, you know, the, the rest becomes a little more clear over time. You can't kind of Einstein it, you know, too much. Let me ask you a topic that you and I have discussed before, but I, I just, I love this. Um, can you talk about your favorite interview question that you ask when you hire somebody? Yeah. And so now we'll see who listens to your podcast when they prep for an interview at Definitive Point. Because <laughs> uh, the Wiley Lister out there will say, all right, I heard this and I know if I'm going to get in front of Justin, I'll have my answer prepped and ready. I've asked the same question for a decade now. And I've asked it, I kid you not, in every single job interview I've done. Uh, and I've interviewed two, 300 candidates over the past decade. And I love it. And their question is simply, pick a product you think is marketed well and tell me why. About two years in, I put a limit on it. I said, it can't be an Apple product because everyone started answering Apple and I got really tired of it. So I've added, they don't make it an Apple product. I have had people answer this question about John Deere tractors, Porsche, Tesla, Gillette shavers. Somebody answered it risk recently about Johnny Walker, you get all over the place. Someone answered it about their Sony television one time, and I love it. The reason why I love this question is because it enables me to think about, evaluate your marketing skills, but you set the ground rules, right? So first off, it's a surprisingly abstract question, but you have to immediately create a structure. So can you walk me through the categories of marketing, right? Do you know who your end buyer is? What's the awareness strategy, demand generation strategy, channel strategy, positioning, pricing, packaging, all those kind of key factors of marketing. You can come up with your own framework. Then you've picked the rules and I'll talk to you about whatever product you want. And then you have to say, okay, well, they understand their buyer, their buyer's needs are this. They positioned it this way. They priced it to go after that way. Boom, 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 boom. And so can you evaluate and explain to me why that product is marketing well. I've seen people go up in flames. They've had a fantastic interview until the point and then they can't answer that question and they don't get the job. And I've seen people in an interview where I thought there's no way in the world I'm going to hire this person. And then she comes in and just blows me away with the answer to the last question. I'm like, wow, I must have missed something here. So it works really well. And do you guide them as they go along and say, like, like if somebody takes a sentence 
rather than, you know, a paragraph or two or three, do you say like, look, I'm looking for you to structure it and, you know, take some time, take a, take a beat if you need it? Yeah, of course. I also engage with them, right? Uh, look, I'm a marketing nerd. So if you want to talk about Coke and why Coke is marketed, well, I'll geek out with you, right? And mm -hmm. we'll talk about that and talk about Coke channel strategy. And, you know, I'll dive down into it, right? It's actually more fun people pick consumer products because everybody has an opinion on a consumer product. But I've had people talk about salesforce.com, which I think is a very well-marketed product or mm -hmm. service and all the different type of stuff. So yeah, I will, yeah. I will dive down and nerd out with you on marketing. And if you can nerd out with me on marketing, you're probably going to get the job. That's awesome. And, and do you do that in the, at the beginning of the, of the, the session where, the or, or well at the end? It's always the last question. Why? If I ask you that question at the beginning, I'm going to throw you off. Mm. And if I throw you off, you're never going to have a chance to get an impression. Look, I mean, you know, interviewing is like dating, right? So I want to get to know you. If I hit you, hit you with that question, beginning of an interview, it's going to rattle those people because it's not, it's not at all you're expecting, right? Mm. And look, the majority of people interview for just probably will not listen to this podcast, right? So they will be expecting that question. If I knock you off at the beginning, I'll never have a chance to get to know you. Hopefully by the end, when we've established rapport over 20 minutes or so, when it hits you with this, you go, okay, I, I can roll with it. Mm -hmm. The smart candidates always say, hmm, give me a minute to pick a product. That is always the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. Right? Because otherwise, you just, you just jump in and you answer it, you're going to get in all sorts of trouble. Right. And, okay. And, and ultimately, and this is really important, I'm not the hiring manager. Right? My team's the hiring manager. So... You know, there are very few candidates by the time they get to me that I push the kibosh on. I do put the kibosh on some. Uh, but if you're going to work in my organization, I interview 100% of the people who are going to work in definitive healthcare marketing. And in fact, I usually interview somebody no matter what organization I'm in for just 30 minutes. Because uh, there's nothing more important than getting the right people. But I'm going to give my feedback back to the hiring manager and be like, hey, look, I wouldn't hire Joe over here, but it's your call. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to hold you accountable, Mr. and Ms. Hiring Manager, for the results in your team. And if you think I'm wrong and you want to hire Joe over here, go for it. And mm -hmm. if Joe delivers results, I'm more than happy to be wrong. True story. There is someone in my marketing organization today, and I'm not going to give you the name, but this person bombed this question. And I didn't want to hire this person. And I told Randy, uh, the hiring manager, I said, don't hire this person. And he said, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to hire this person. And this person's going to prove you wrong. And I'm happy to report that I actually told Randy the other day, I was wrong. This person did bomb the question, but it turned out to be a fantastic hire. Now, let's pivot a little bit. Um, since we are running out of time, I would love to hear you, you looking ahead to 2022, are there any trends that you foresee for B2B SaaS marketers that are in scale-up mode? The biggest trend that I see right now is it is wicked difficult to hire. That's the Massachusetts guy in me coming through. Yep. I wish the hiring market had been like this 15 years ago when I was a product marketing manager coming out of B-School. My God, I could have written my ticket instead of, you know, praying for getting a job and going tons and tons of interviewing. Many more doors on my, uh, slant in my face than offers that I got. I think the war for talent next year is going to be every bit, if not war, more brutal than it has been this year. And so when you've got a winning person on your team, you got to keep that person on your team. I think that's the big one. 
Second trend I see, and this is again, kind of in the no kidding or, you know, thanks genius category. You got to continue to be able to measure. And I think measurement is going to be really tricky because of all the changes that are going on with, you know, the mobile devices and the tracking and Apple's new privacy policies that are going on. I think most people know this by now, but Google has actually shifted its rankings to be mobile first now. So if we are in a world where we're all trying to market to people on their mobile devices, and then we've got the conflicting challenge of Apple uh, and more and more privacy regulations going on, how do we get the right metrics and insight in a world where we can make good decisions? Marketing over the past 10 years has become way more data-driven. And so as a result of being data, we're used to having all this good data. I don't know what kind of data we're going to be able to get next year. I mean, I'm sure we're going to figure it out, but that trend worries me uh, a little bit. And I think those are probably the, the two big things that I think are on my mind right now, that kind of top of mind what I'm thinking about. That's great. It's interesting. The first one about hiring, I mean, you're making a joke about coming out of B-school and, you know, like being happy to get whatever job you got. It's making me think about the abundancy mindset versus the scarcity mindset and somebody coming up in their career now, they're likely going to have more of an abundance mindset and that might stick with them over the course of their career versus people who came out, you know, during more of a, of a recession and, and were building their careers then. So that's, I think that's a really interesting extension. It, it really is. And, you know, the other question is, is the grass might not always be greener. Right. People are saying, right. oh, I'm going to leap a job and oh, I'm going to make $10,000 more. And yet $10,000 is a chunk of change. Don't get me wrong. But if you're going from a place where you have a tremendous work-life balance, you really like the people that you're working here. And so suddenly you're making $10,000 more, but you're working every Sunday. Is it worth it? Yeah. And I think people are right now are chasing a little bit of the, the money because the market is so frothy without thinking about the other components that go into the job. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see uh, just the effect of this over time. This is awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to talk with you about scale and scaling and um, having scaled and, and your hiring and your organizational um, uh, kind of decisions. It's great to kind of get a, get a lens into the world of Justin Steinman. So thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. That was Justin Steinman, the Chief Marketing Officer from Definitive Healthcare. Justin had great tips on boosting marketing's contribution and reputation and transparency. Next time on The Get, you'll hear from Cynthia Gumbert, CMO of SmartBear, about scaling a SaaS business in the product-led growth era and how to build a business-first, marketing-second mindset on the marketing team. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening to The Get. I'm your host, Erica Seidel. Hiring great marketing leaders is not easy. The Get is designed to inspire smart decisions about recruiting and leadership in B2B SaaS marketing. We explore the trends, tribulations, and triumphs of today's top marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. This season's theme is solving for the scale journey. If you liked this episode, please share it. For other insights on recruiting great marketing leaders, what I call the make money marketing leaders rather than the make it pretty ones, follow me on LinkedIn. You can also sign up for my newsletter at theconnectivegood.com. The Get is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions.